I hear a train a coming. It's rolling round the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. But it's a brand new year and time keeps marching on. So let's get back on the express and ride into 2021. Welcome back to the Express, folks, and my apologies and thanks to the late Johnny Cash for borrowing some of his lyrics. They just fit sometimes like a crisp black shirt. Welcome to 2021, and it is so good to be here. There's a lot on tap this week to get ready for, and we're going to go deep into the future of ETFs with Dave Nodding of ETF Trends in just a few minutes. But we can't let 2020 go without boiling down all the numbers to tell us where we are in the recovery and where we might be headed. Let's start with the unemployment situation. The U.S. unemployment rate is now 6.7% as of November. We'll get the December numbers later this week. It reached a high of 14.7% in April of 2020. 10.7 million people are unemployed as of November. 3.9 million, or 37%, are long-term unemployed. That means 27 weeks or more of being unemployed. The unemployment rate is highest for men 20 to 24 years old, and that's at 10.5%. If you only have a high school degree, the average unemployment rate is 7.7%. If you have a bachelor's degree or higher, the average rate is 4.4%. Degrees matter here as more and more people are working from home. The U.S. poverty rate stands at 11.7%. 7.8 million Americans have fallen into poverty since June. That's the largest increase since 1979 and 1980. That was during the Middle East oil crisis. The poverty level is $26,200 for a family of four, and the average unemployment payment fell from $900 a week to $200 a week in August. That's why the stimulus bill matters. How about the state of the U.S. consumer? The U.S. savings rate rose 173% between March and November. After-tax personal income rose by $1.03 trillion, or 8%, between March and November. Spending, on the other hand, fell by $575 billion. That's the effect of the pandemic and the lack of business travel. U.S. housing prices were up 8.6% in October versus October of 2019. On the other hand, 12 million renters will owe an average of $5,850 in back rent and utilities by January. The K-shaped recovery, folks, is so obvious, especially in the housing market. And it's blindingly obvious in capital markets, too. 56 people became billionaires in 2020, and the world's 500 richest people added $1.8 trillion to their combined net worth. They are now worth $7.6 trillion, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. On the flip side, the global pandemic pushed as many as 115 million people into extreme poverty in 2020, according to the World Bank. Eight out of ten of the new poor, as they are called, live in middle-income countries. How about returns for capital markets? Well, here are the returns for major asset classes, indexes, and markets for 2020. We'll use some ETF proxies for some of them. The S&P 500 was up 16% in 2020. Small caps, using the IWM ETF, were up 20%. Foreign stocks, up 7.6%. How about emerging markets? 18%. Look at IEMG, the ETF. How about junk bonds? Up 5%. Long-term government bonds using TLT, the ETF? 18.2%. Aggregate bonds? 7.5%. Corporate bonds? Look at LQD, that ETF was up 11% in 2020, and gold was up 25%. How about Bitcoin? 
up 304% in 2020. Almost every asset class but oil and cash rose in 2020. How about the top performing stocks in 2020? Well, you'd have to be unplugged to not know that Tesla was up some 700% in 2020, especially after it joined the S&P 500. Etsy, the top performing stock during the Trump administration, up 300% last year. And how about Carrier Global, up 212%. How about the bottom performing stocks? Well, look at the cruise lines like Carnival Corp, down 57%, or Norwegian, down 56.5%. But it was also the oil companies, Occidental Petroleum, Marathon Oil, all down 50% or more, and the airlines like United, down 50% or more in 2020. Meanwhile, the seven most valuable U.S. technology companies, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Tesla, and NVIDIA, they picked up a combined $3.4 trillion in market cap in 2020, powering through the pandemic and through the broader economic crisis. And cryptos, well, they went crazy, as we said. Bitcoin broke through $34,000 a coin just last week, and it's already up more than 10% this year. Even Ethereum reached its highest price since February of 2018. Crypto mania is back in style in 2020 and 2021, so watch out for that bubble. The next two weeks will be critical for COVID-19 cases as the post-holiday fallout begins and more new cases of this highly contagious strain of the virus pop up around the world. It's also a big week for economic reports, particularly in the U.S. labor market. We'll get the December unemployment report on Friday, and it is expected to show a slight rise in the unemployment rate as fewer jobs were added in December than in November or October. The U.S. economy is in for a rough winter, especially as the vaccine rollout takes time to gather momentum. Global investments into exchange-traded funds and exchange-traded products topped $7 trillion in 2020. At the end of last month, the industry had over 8,200 ETFs and ETPs with almost 16,500 listings from 474 providers on 73 exchanges in 59 countries. It's safe to say the industry has arrived. It's a global phenomenon, and it's been unfolding for the past decade, and it accelerated in the market madness that was 2020. But where do we go from here? No one knows the exchange-traded product universe like Dave Nottig. He's the director of research for ETF Trends and a good friend to Investopedia. Welcome to The Express, Dave. I'm so excited to finally be here. Thanks for having me. What were some of the biggest surprises in the exchange-traded world in 2020 for you? What shocked you the most? Honestly, probably how many smaller players, and not necessarily by size of company, but like new entrants actually managed to find traction, I think we've lost sight of the numbers, right? So we had a half a trillion dollar inflow year, $500 billion flowed into US listed exchange traded products. And yeah, there's a bit of an 80-20 or 70-30 rule, a huge amount of that, hundreds of billions of dollars of that went into cheap beta, i.e., you know, the S&P 500 at four or 10 basis points, the Bloomberg aggregate at five basis points, those kinds of products, which, hey, that's great. Those are fantastic products for most investors. That's why ETFs are generally so awesome, because you can put together an institutional quality portfolio at institutional quality prices, one share at a time. That's great. 
But that other 20 or 30% is now 100 or $200 billion a year. And that sort of bottom of the curve, if you will, was full of all sorts of incredibly interesting products. The ones I'd highlight are things related to ESG, environmental, social, and governance. That was a big year. It was about $60 billion in flows, depending on how you want to count. Nobody can even agree what ESG stands for, much less which funds count. But somewhere between, sorry, 40 to $60 billion flowed into ESG. SG funds of some sort. That's huge. That's three times the flows we've seen anywhere else. It's right, a we're real talking environmental, state. social governance for folks that want to know what ESG means. Yes, that's socially responsible investing. Exactly. It has lots of different names. Some people will include something like a clean energy fund. Some people won't. But regardless, if you put a big umbrella around it, lots of money flowed in. Investors clearly voted with their wallets that they want their values to matter in their investing for some reason. That was a big one for me. And also a lot of really interesting products that solve real problems around things like risk management and income. And some of them are pretty non-traditional. We had a raft of products that use options to either help you manage your risk or give you more upside participation or generate income from income-less markets. All of those things showed up this year. A lot of them pulled in big money. And we don't talk about them because nowadays a fund that launches and pulls in 100 or 200 or $300 million doesn't make a headline. Four or five years ago, that was the star of the year. Right. I remember going into this year, we, we met at a conference before all of this came down and back in January or February, the buzz was actively managed ETFs, non-transparent ETFs, fixed income ETFs. It's interesting how a global pandemic shifts the focus a little bit, but those did come to market. What are the trends we need to be watching for in 2021? So I think there's some continuation. The risk management has been a big theme this year, certainly coming out of March and April. It was a huge theme, which is why we saw a lot of things like defined outcome products, which you know, give you a little bit of buffer around your experience. They had a lot of traction, pulled in billions of dollars in the summer because that focus on risk management was so strong. Now that we're sitting here at all-time highs in most asset classes, I think that that's still a very prudent thing for people to be worried about. So whether your risk management comes in the form of something a little more complex like an option strategy or something a little more traditional like just managing your diversification well, I think that's going to be a big trend for the coming year. The lack of an income alternative, for particularly for older investors and the advisors who serve them, that's not going away anytime soon, right? There is, we are not headed towards an environment where you're going to get 6% on interest, maybe in my lifetime again. Like it's going to be a long time. So if you're an investor who's trying to live off your investments, let's like say here in retirement, that becomes a huge problem as well. And so I think you'll see more income-oriented strategies for sure. We have a lot of filings that are going to launch in this first quarter around things like preferred stocks or REITs. Um, so you can reach for income that way. You're generally taking some sort of risk. There's usually some, not a gotcha, but nothing's free in the world. So I think that's going to be a big strategy. But I also think we're going to see a lot of discussion on sites like ours and yours and among advisors and investors about how you manage things like capital drawdowns, right? I mean, an incomeless word, world, eventually, you have to eat your portfolio in order to survive. Right, and I think we're going to be, yeah, we're going to have a lot more conversations about that. So I think those are going to be two of the big themes. Right. And the advisors that we talk to say the same thing. The big challenge, especially for those older investors at or near retirement is, 
What does a fixed income world look like going forward, given what we know about rates? Let's talk a little bit about some of the new entrants that's caught fire in 2020 because of the COVID economy, because of the stay-at-home economy. The ARK Innovation ETFs come to mind, the basket of those e-commerce stocks, the internet stocks, the stay-at-home stocks, even their vaccine pharma ETF, and the JETS ETF, which was the airline ETF. It's very small going into this year, all of a sudden, because of the huge drawdown in airline stocks, and then the rebound, given the hopes for a recovery, has exploded into this massive of ETF. What are the other ETFs that found their moment in 2020 that look like they can continue to have momentum into 2021? Well, I mean, I don't want to skip over what happened to ARK Invest because that's going to be one of these generational stories we tell like Peter Lynch running Magellan back in the day, right? So Kathy Wood and the team she's put together, and it's important to point out, she's put together a heck of a team. This is not a one-woman shop, but kudos to her because it's her vision and her, her driving force. They have put together a formula that has really just exploded for that firm, right? Tens of billions of dollars in inflows this year. Not one of their main funds is under 100. 20% up for the year. I mean, just unbelievable performance. We don't get a lot of years like that, right? There are not very many years where we can nominate an active manager, a stock picker, old school 1980s era stock picker and say, yeah, they nailed it. This is a career generational defining moment for the industry. Now, what that means is a lot of people are going to be taking pot shots, right? You're going to read articles next year about, you know, can ARC do it again? Is Kathy Wood's time to shine over? Like, inevitably, you can write the Barron's headlines now, right? It's sort of inevitable. And of course, nobody expects this funds, these funds to have 200% years year after year. But it, it highlights your point, which is this was a radical year of haves and have-nots in the market, where even the have-nots, you point out jets, had their moments in the sun because that drawdown was so violent and the recovery was equally as violent. If we're looking at some of the smaller things that that maybe got lost in the shuffle, you know, you mentioned active management. This was a big year for active management, Huge. not just for ARC. ARC is the notable, you know, name above the title version of that. But like T. Rowe Price launched a bunch of actively managed funds and pulled in decent amounts of money in strategies that they've been running for decades. Like T-Row Price Blue Chip Growth, it's got to be a 25-year-old fund at this point. I think it's had the same manager for most of that tenure. I think it's been a Morningstar five-star fund since year five. Like These are stalwarts of the active management industry, which on the one hand, if you're a skeptic, you can say, this is a guy who's flipped a coin a lot and managed to pull up heads every time. Or you can say, hey, yeah, it's really rare to find active management talent that persists. And this is one of those places. So T-Row Price, Great launches, Fidelity, solid launches, American Century, solid launches. So all these folks are coming to market this year with these big active managed products that seem to be landing. Right. Now, when you look, and you and I have talked about this in the past, at what's happening in the actively managed mutual fund industry and the mutual fund industry itself versus the growth in the ETF industry, which you've been closely associated with, you predicted, you told me, I think a, a year or so ago, you know, we are going to see this uh, the mutual funds as an endangered species in the next five to 10 years. There's still a lot of money in mutual funds and a lot of older investors rely on them. Even younger investors rely on them, but ETFs are growing so fast. How fast do you think that trend will accelerate to where one, the ETF industry overtakes 
the mutual fund industry. Yeah, so we so I actually publish a chart on this every year. And for a long time, 2024 had been the crossover year where we were sitting at about, you know, four trillion in ETF assets, about 10 or 12 trillion in mutual fund assets, X money markets. And you could sort of map out the growth path. And it looked like we were about three or four years away. The problem is we just had this incredible year in the market followed by another incredible year in the market. Like 19 and 20 are going to go down as just crazy but ultimately very positive years, that kind of rising tide lifts the mutual fund side of the balance sheet more than the ETF side because it starts at a larger base. So big up markets actually extend the lifetime of the mutual fund industry because they sort of get these free assets, right? If that $12 trillion grew to 14, almost exclusively on the back of market growth, but they had net negative flow as they have pretty much every year for the last 10 or 15 years, but you know, when markets are up this much, that offsets a lot of that negative flow. So we're looking at probably 2025, 2026 now. We pushed it out a couple of years, but the trend is just inexorable, right? I mean, this is going to be a delta of about $600 billion this year between money going into mutual funds and going into ETFs. So $100 billion-ish out of mutual funds, I would predict when we get the numbers all done, about $500 billion into ETFs. That's the pattern we see over and over again. And the more violent the market swings, the more that happens. Uh, but mutual funds are great, right? I mean, I have money of my own in mutual funds. It's in cheap, low-cost index funds run by Schwab. But mutual funds serve the purpose. It lets me dollar cost average in. I don't have to worry about commissions and spreads. Don't have to worry about whether I'm putting in limit orders. There's a convenience factor to a well-run, cheap mutual fund that is hard to get away from. Absolutely. Hey, will 2021 be the year we finally see a cryptocurrency ETF that is actually backed by a cryptocurrency <laughs> like Bitcoin? I know everyone's talking about it. We have variations of that now, but they track the price really and not the underlying asset. What's it going to take for, for a crypto ETF to really come to market backed by the asset air quotes? Uh, regime change at the SEC. That's really what it comes down to. Right now, we have one commissioner, Hester Peirce, who's sort of like the libertarian commissioner, if you will. I mean, I think she was reported by, appointed by a Republican, but I, you know, I, she is fundamentally the libertarian member of the commission. And she's been very pro Bitcoin, pro cryptocurrency, pro ETF wrappers for those things. There's not a lot of other momentum in the SEC, either from staff or from the, you know, the new head coming in. We're obviously going to see some new folks appointed here in a Biden administration. I think it's a little unreasonable to expect that we're going to get a cryptocurrency bull as the first person out of the gate showing up. So I think 21 is optimistic. That being said, Bitwise, the cryptocurrency asset manager and indexer, just basically launched their sort of pink sheet version of their index fund. BITW is the ticker for it, which now marries with GBTC, another pink sheet traded company trust, if you will, that invests in Bitcoin that's very popular. I know you guys have articles about it on your site. People talk about it all the time. The problem is this is a terrible way to get access to any kind of investment because it acts like the worst parts of a closed-end fund, trades to huge premiums, could trade to huge discounts. There's no creation redemption mechanism, so you don't actually get the exposure you want. But that's the best you can do right now if you're trying to avoid opening a crypto wallet and just doing this on your own. I don't see a path for us to get to the ETF without a major shift at the SEC. So I think it's probably still two years out at a minimum. I don't see it happening in calendar 21. What's your hottest take for 2021 as we start this year, turning the page on 2020? Hottest take in general. It doesn't have to be ETF centric, but but what's what are you thinking that uh, could be a big shocker for us? 
I think it's going to be a big year of consolidation. And we've gotten the, the sort of thin ends of that already. There have been rumors about SSGA, State Street Global Advisors being on the block or possibly even splitting their product line apart. They're seen as one of the big three. But if you actually pull the curtain back, it's actually several businesses together. Like GLD is not actually a State Street product. It's a World Gold Council product. And then the sector funds are sort of their own thing. Spy is its own thing. So I could easily see that product line being either broken up or the whole thing being sold hook, line, and sinker. We've seen a bunch of consolidation already in the mutual fund business. Eaton, Vance, and Parametric getting gobbled up last year was a big sort of quiet but still very big deal. Um, for our industry, you know, Goldman buying a bunch of stuff from Motif and Schwab buying the rest of it. I think we'll see a bunch of that consolidation. And I think a lot of it's going to be presaging this move towards direct or custom indexing, which I think will be the next big shoe to drop in sort of organized finance, packaged finance like ETFs and mutual funds. Direct or custom indexing is the next big thing. It's not necessarily going to crack in 21. We'll be talking a lot about it. I don't expect Schwab to drop a giant new product suite on us uh, that lets everybody do their own custom indexing. But 22, 22 seems like a pretty good guess for when we're going to start seeing that at the retail level. Well, we've seen a ton of consolidation in the last two years in the online brokerage industry. And you mentioned some of the money management industry. And I don't think you're wrong about the fact that we'll probably see a lot more money's cheap. Stock prices are inflated. The market is is grown in in so many different ways, but whatever it is, it will be fascinating, and we can't wait to follow you and keep reading you on ETF Trends. Dave Nodig, the director of research for ETF Trends, a good friend to the site, wishing you, your family, and your team a great 2021. Thanks for being on the Express, Caleb. Thanks for having me, and uh, warm shout out to all your friends. It's terminology time. Time for the educated investor to get smart about the investing term we need to know. This week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Mark Lee in Edmonton, the city where Investopedia was born. Mark suggests the January effect this week, and why not? He'll be getting a pair of those buttersoft and elegant Investopedia socks for his suggestion, and you can too by DMing us on Instagram with your suggestion for next week if we use it. What is the January effect? Well, according to my favorite website, the January effect is a perceived seasonal increase in stock prices during the month of January. Market watchers generally attribute this rally to an increase in buying, which follows the drop in price that typically happens in December when investors engaging in tax loss harvesting to offset realized capital gains prompt a sell-off. Well, that didn't happen last December. Markets are at record highs. Another possible explanation is that investors used to use their year-end cash bonuses to purchase investments the following month. While this market anomaly, the January effect, has been identified in the past, it's really not such a thing in the 21st century, but it is an interesting term, so keep an eye on it. We'll let Charlie Munger, the legendary investor and vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, take us out this week with his words of wisdom to the University of California Investor Center last year. I was very lucky in my own life because every place I looked, at the pinnacle, there was a guy that was better than I was. And my father, one of my father's best friends was a great surgeon with a vast mechanical ability. And I knew what this man did with his mechanical abilities and inventing all these spreaders and things he used to do his operation. But I would never be as good as he was. And everywhere I looked, there was somebody like that. And there was all this folly out there. And I suddenly realized, Mike, if I just avoid all the folly, 
you know, maybe I can get an advantage without having to be really good at anything. And I kept <laughs> doing that all my life, and it worked so well that I, I, I enjoy sharing it with people like you. May we always have people in our lives who are better than we are and who help us strive to be our very best. You be excellent this week and this new year, and we'll be back with you next week on the Investopedia Express. I'm Caleb Silver, and thanks for listening.